Nice to see you this morning. So we are going to uh, continue our, se- our series in Colossians. We're at uh, chapter 2. And it's quite a, a big passage this morning from verses 6 all the way down to 23. So Colossians 2, verses 6 to 23. So we're continuing our series, uh, a, Paul, a letter Paul wrote to uh, a group of Christians in the first century who were trying to work out how to live in response to Jesus' teaching and example. Uh, it was a culture, as Neil said before, of mixed traditions of different philosophies, Greek philosophy, uh, pagan religions, Jewish traditions, a mishmash of lots of different ideas and all different worldviews. <clears throat> this part of the letter is, is a really dense part of the, a really dense passage, but it's got so much good stuff in it. Uh, and Paul writes it to counteract some of those philosophies that start to infiltrate the church. Um, and it's one of the key texts that tells us about the meaning of this thing. You might be wondering why we've got a big cross out this morning, but it will all become clear. But it will, this, it's one of the central texts about what the, mean, the cross means and how central it is to our faith. Um, I was thinking about this passage and uh, um, the, the, the sort of culture that we, we live in. Gemma, could you just flick us on, please? Cheers. Uh, a performance-based culture we're part of, isn't it? And this, there's a little cartoon, there's a little boy playing video games and his dad next to him with not much hair. And Daddy, he says, Daddy worked hard for this promotion, Tommy. The business world doesn't have cheat codes. And uh, just thinking about there's no shortcuts in, in business. There's no shortcuts in life. And, um, and I was thinking about the sort of culture we, we are born into. And uh, from early childhood, before we can even talk, we're measured by our performance, aren't we? We're given rules. Like, oh, no, 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 don't touch that. No, that's naughty. Don't eat that. No, don't put it in your mouth. Or, yeah, put that in, eat that. It's really good for you. Um, you know, what do you say? Where are your manners? That's you from, a, from, from toddlers, from babies upwards. We're rewarded, aren't we, when we, when we live up to the expectations of other people, and we're punished when we don't. Parents do it. Um, teachers do it. Sunday school teachers, if you're part of brownies or cubs or guides, um, all these sort of rules and expectations you're, 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 you're asked to meet. This continues into our adulthood, into workplaces. Uh, we're given contracts, aren't we, and targets, and we've got performance-related uh, pay or promotion. We're, it's present in social circles as well, and wider family life, friendships, based on mutual expectations. And, and if you're not perceived as living up to the expectations of somebody else, people fall out. You might be ostracized. You might be criticized. The whole justice system is built on, on expectations, isn't it? Your laws and legislations that are, you're expected to follow. Some things are, actions are deemed acceptable. Others are deemed unacceptable. Incentives are given and tax breaks, things like that, benefits for certain, behaving in certain ways. And then religion adds to all of it by telling us that God has given his laws on top of all that, which we've broken, whether, we believe, whether we we're aware of it or not, and that we should feel guilty for doing so. In fact, the established church of the centuries has made a virtue out of pe- making people feel bad. I'm really glad this morning that we've had lots of things, lots of uh, words and songs and encouragement about, about throwing off, feeling bad about yourself. Because the church over the centuries, parts of the church particularly, have not been very good at this. Um, making people jump through hoops to try and alleviate guilt, things like indulgences, uh, confession, self-mutilation, abstinence. All these things are sort of being, say, if you just do these things, then God will be right. You'll be right with God and you'll be, you'll be happier about yourself. And us religious leaders, we'll, we'll be happy with you as well. So um, that's pretty much it for today. So I hope you've had a nice day. And uh, <laughs> happy Mother's Day, everyone. Encouraged. Okay, so that's just a bit of context about, about I think, this performance-related based culture that we're born into, but also was present in the first century Colossae. So let's read the, the passage from chapter, so chapter 2, verses 6 onwards. 
Paul writes this, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any, any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So it's a dense part of Paul's letter. There's a lot in there, isn't there? So I'm just going to draw out a few things this morning. So there were clearly some people in Colossae, whether this is one person or a group of people, who were teaching that to deal with our sin, our wrongdoing, is to basically to be better at keeping rules, to be more pure, to, to treat your body harshly, so maybe through fasting or abstinence of certain things. And this person was showing off. So they were saying, oh, I'm really good at this. And uh, I've had visions of angels because I'm so good. Um, and I, I keep all the holy days and all the festivals. And, and it appears that some people were actually starting to believe this person, start to follow this person rather than the example of Christ. And there was a bit of disruption in the church. Not only that, but they were bragging about it and seemingly judging other people. They were saying, well, I do this and, I'm really, and I see all these visions and, do all the, and God does all these amazing things in my life. So, uh, and, but you, you clearly aren't doing that, so that's why God's not speaking to you. And um, Jesus had quite a lot, of, a lot of criticism for people like that, didn't he? In fact, that was where all his criticism was aimed at people that were, were, were seemingly doing all the right things, but for the wrong reasons. And Paul continues that sort of criticism by saying, these people have lost connection with Christ. They've lost connection with the head, the one who causes us to grow, verse 19. <clears throat> and we've probably all met people like that, Christians like that, haven't we? And it's actually quite easy for us ourselves to slip into doing the right things, but for the wrong reason. To try and impress other people, or to try and feel that like we can be more acceptable to God or to others. 
about 10 years ago, uh, in the church I belonged to, there was a very small group of us that were really, really hungry uh, for God's presence. We, we, like this morning, we were singing songs about, you know, we just want more of God's presence, and, and we were really hungry to just, just experience more of God. And we were trying all these different things, so we were reading more of the Bible, we were praying more, we, we set up some like, all-night prayer and worship meetings and like, soaking se- and s- sessions where we just lie on the floor and wait for God's presence to come, and we'd go to conferences and maybe thought we thought that that would maybe do it. And we even tried watching God TV, and that's how desperate we were. Uh, <clears throat> but at the end of it, we still felt hungry for more. We still felt unsatisfied, like there was more to experience. One of the group, um, he'd had a real um, experience of the Holy Spirit. He actually fell down and was, was shaking and trembling. He'd never had that before in his life. He was like, God's really doing something. And he stumbled across this website by some ex-dot-com billionaire guy that essentially was saying, all modern Christians are a bit phony because they, they really, they sort of pick and choose what they want to believe in the Bible and they disregard loads of the Old Testament and, you know, they, they sort of really should be adhering to much more of the, the, the Jewish laws and the customs and really we need to get back to that. And I've heard that, the, those sort of rumors over the years quite a lot in church. But he was going so far as to say that every time you see Lord in the Bible in capitals, like I think it's something like 6,000 times, um, that's where God's proper name should be. His name is Yahweh. And uh, so every time we say Lord, actually what we're doing is we're actually invoking a pagan God. And he was going so far as to say, when you say Lord, you're not only not saying God's name, but you're actually talking to a pagan God. And then he had more criticism for anybody when we use the word Jesus, because obviously J, there's no J in the Hebrew language. So why are we calling him Jesus? Um, it should be Yeshua or Yeshua, depending on how you how you meant to pronounce it. So And so all these different, and I'll tell you, there's pages and pages and pages of this stuff. And I've got to say, I thought, at this point, I thought, wow, this is amazing. Let's start looking at the food laws and start looking at at the festivals, like the the Feast feast of Weeks or the Festival of Tabernacles. And and we got down this road where we were like thinking that we were getting closer to God because we were trying to do all these new things and and we sort of rediscovering really what it meant to be a Christian. And I'll never forget one men's breakfast on a Saturday morning. I don't know why they do men's breakfasts. not like women don't eat breakfast. Anyway, but men's breakfasts and uh, where we get to eat get fried food. Uh, and um, obviously there's a lot of pig going on, pork and sausage, sausages and, and bacon. And at this point I was like, I'm not sure about the food laws. Maybe we should start, maybe we should stop eating sausage. And, and, and I remember saying, somebody kept saying, why are you only eating scrambled egg and tomatoes? I said, well, and I, and I remember saying, well, I'm not sure really. I, th- I, think, uh, I think we probably as Christians should be following the food laws. And the face, the faces of people, the stony silence at that point. Um, and uh, not only did all of this come across as sort of very judgmental of other people, but actually got me to the faith, uh, to the point in my faith where I, I honestly didn't even know what to believe anymore. I was that disorientated by all these different conflicting uh, opinions and regulations that there was a point when I was leading worship and I thought, I don't know if I can even pick a song that says Jesus in it because I don't know if I'm dishonoring Yeshua by saying Jesus. And it, was, it, it went that far down the road. I've never been in such conflict in my faith as in that time. And it caused a lot of disruption in the church as well. There was only about three or four of us that were doing it. Um, but lots of people, we were, trying, we were sort of really trying to tell other people as well, we were saying, you should really be doing this, you know. You realize that we've, we've, lost, we've lost our way here when Christians should be doing this. And we disrupted lots and lots of people. And uh, what started as a hunger to get closer to God actually ended up dividing us and, and pushing us completely the other way. 
And it just got me thinking about this passage and about this guy. And we don't really know that much about who these people were, but they were sort of, I think, going down the same route. Some of the scholars said it wasn't necessarily they were trying to make them more Jewish. In fact, he was saying it was, they, th- they think it was some kind of Jewish mysticism. So it was like Ju- Judaism mixed with other sorts of religions and little bit sound bites from different philosophies and all rolling them into one and then telling people that they should believe that. And Paul is, is writing to people like that to say, you can't twist God's arm. There's nothing wrong with the laws or the traditions in themselves, but if you think you can get closer to God by strictly adhering them and then start slagging other people off who aren't doing it, then you, you completely lost connection with the head. You've completely lost connection with Jesus. He's the one who causes us to grow. He continues in verse 8 and says, don't be taken captive by other philosophies or traditions that don't depend on Christ. And essentially, this philosophy, in my experience, had got hold of me and it had taken me captive. Um, he goes on and makes another point about, about a particular part of the Jew, Jew, Jewish tradition, about circumcision. And uh, as most of you probably know, circumcision was an outward sign for a, that a man was a Jew uh, and that they belonged to God. And the idea was you set aside part of your body to show that you've been set apart by God. To be honest, it's a bit of a rubbish one, because like, who even knows that anyway? Unless you're going around, you know, uh, <laughs> indecent, how would you even know? Uh, anyway, that's just my opinion. There might be other reasons, there might be other deep reasons for that, but I'm not sure what they are. Um, but essentially, it was a shadow. What Paul says, these are things were a shadow of what was to come. So they were helpful for a time and a purpose, and they, they had, a, they had a, a way of speaking to you about, about your faith and about to other people, you're set apart for God. But when Jesus comes and he's uh, teaching his resurrection, what, what marked Christians out, what marked the people of God out was something different than just traditions and rules. And that's what he was saying. Post-resurrection circumcision, got, uh, Paul, for Paul, it meant he was a Jew, so he would have been circumcised. He, would, he was a really strict Jew. Jesus was a Jew as well, wasn't he? So it's not that they, these things in themselves are wrong, but he was saying you need much more than these. And he was saying circumcision now for us is cutting away your old life, not just a part of your body. And rather than it being done by people, something happens when you become a Christian. It's done by God. I mean, Annalise this morning, you know, the fact that you've probably been in church for a long time and people have spoken to you about God and tried to convince you and stuff. But at the end of the day, it's God that does it, isn't it? God has to open people's eyes and you can't convince or argue somebody into the kingdom. It's God that, that does it and makes that. That's when the transaction happens. That's when it changes. And um, the... And he was saying that rather than, than tradition now being the outward sign, you get getting baptized is actually an outward sign. So I would encourage anybody this morning that if you're not baptized, it's not, again, it's not a, another traditional law that you have to adhere to, but it's an outward sign that you're a Christian. You're public, publicly telling everybody, this is who I am. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation. So Paul, and like Jesus before him, was re- reinterpreting and reframing a key Jewish practice. And he was criticizing those who, who were trying to chain up non-Jews. Um, by getting them to stick to rules and tra- traditions. And he does the same in, in his letter to Galatians. The other thing that he draws out from this is that about rules is that actually rules lack any power to break sinful habits. So you only don't have to tell a child to say no. Like as soon as you say, don't do that, they want to do it. And I think, to be honest, most of us, anybody else in that boat, like as adults, when somebody says don't do something, you're like, why not? Well, maybe there's something good in that. <laughs> maybe I should be discovering that because... It seems like that's, that sounds quite you know, interesting. Um, as soon as you say somebody, the sign comes up and says, don't stand on the grass, people want to go and run on the grass, don't they? And so Paul was saying the rules and traditions are helpful to a point, but they don't actually have any power in themselves. They can't break sinful habits. 
We need something much more. And he's saying what we need is a circumcision of the heart. We need a change of heart. Gemma, could you push me on another one, please? Thank you. Now, verses 13 and 14, Paul starts to use language, legal language. He starts to talk about charges. This is like a, a mock charge sheet. Uh, I was looking on, online for charge sheets of uh, police stations. Obviously, I've never been charged. Uh, for those who have, you know, this is probably not a very good one. Uh, but essentially, what is on a charge sheet? And it's like things like, here's the charges. Who's the name of the accused? What is the date that, that they've been accused of something? Who's, um, what's the date of trial? Is there any payment necessary? Who's the authorized signatory? And uh, Paul starts using legal language at this point to, to emphasize his point. He says, we were dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh, and that we were legally indebted. Legally indebted. Um, and there's not, a, there's not a person in history, is there, other than Jesus, who's, who's never done something or thought something wrong. You know, if you could think about, if you, I mean, Nicky Gumbel once talked about this on the Alpha course. He says, can you imagine that if we, we stuck on the, on the projector now, all the bad thoughts, all the wrong actions, and all the terrible deeds you've done, and we just displayed them, how many of us wouldn't be running out that door within, within seconds? Because there's not a person, even the most saintly of people, even a Mother Teresa-like person or a Martin Luther King-type person who are famous for their, you know, for, for their integrity and, and, and the, the way that their character, even they would admit there's times when they fall so short and they're not the person they want to be. And um, you know what Paul is saying is that some people live like they're on bail. It's like all these things are, are, are like are charges that are weighing up against us. And this morning we've, talked, we've alluded to it that actually sometimes even though you're a Christian, you can feel like, oh, I've done another thing wrong. It's like another thing heaped on top of my charge sheet. It's another thing that's, that's going to make me feel guilty about myself. It's another thing people are not going to accept me because of. And, um, and Paul goes straight to that and says uh, that we need to stop worrying about what God thinks about us and whether we've done enough to appease him. And in a minute, he'll tell us why. Um, I just thought, it was, it's actually an, an idea Neil had, but I, um, I was thinking about a charge sheet. What are the sort of things we might write? This is my mock charge sheet. Obviously, it's a, more of a primary school type version um, with marker pens. What would you put what would you, in your worst of days, in your worst of thoughts? What are the sort of things do you think we would, would have on our charge sheet? Do you want to shout some things out? Selfishness. Okay. Good start. Thoughtlessness, okay, yeah, probably not one that we would think about straight away. <laughs> Oops, I thought thoughtfulness, sorry, Thought, thoughtlessness, shame, pride, unforgiveness, vanity, judgment, yeah, judging people, yeah. We're going down the seven deadly sins here, aren't we? Greed, what else? Anything else? Gossip. Good one that doesn't seem quite as severe, but Paul has a lot, of, a lot to say about that in his letters, doesn't he? What else? Failure. Failure. Something else? Negativity. Yeah. Negativity. Hopelessness. Intolerance. Tolerance. Gluttony. Okay, we've got plenty on there. I've, I've, I've run out of room already, and uh, that just goes to show that there's an awful lot, isn't there? And even, I mean, not on, on our best of days, some, lots of other things wouldn't be on there, but on our worst of days, we probably all would say, 
most of those things I've, I've done. I've thought, I've said, or I've not done, I've not thought, I've not said. And, um, and, and some people live like they've got a charge sheet just building up in their lives. And um, how, we resp- how, we, how do we respond to it? What philosophy and what attitude or what perspective can we have that will actually enable us to deal with it in a healthy way? There's lots of different philosophies uh, now and lots of different ways of responding to, to, to these sorts of things and, and the feelings we have, the guilt that we have because of it. But there were lots in Paul's day as well. In first century Colossae, there have been hundreds of different competing philosophies as well. And um, I was just thinking of a few different ways that people deal with, with feeling that they've done stuff wrong. One is denial. So we can all do this sort of times. And, you know, and, and one of the first things that when, we, when we're found out about something, the first thing we want to do is say, oh, I'm sure it wasn't me. I'm sure I didn't do it. It was somebody else's fault. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm a decent person. Anyway, I'm probably better than most people. I'm as good as most people. Blaming other people. So, you know, you could bring, blame your upbringing. Well, it wasn't my fault. This is just the way I've been brought up. I've had a really difficult life, and that's why I am the way I am. And I can't help being like that. Um, or maybe I've had some really, you've had some really difficult things in your life, and so you, it's, then you can blame that. So, well, I've, I've lost people I loved, or you know, I've had a terrible accident, which has meant I'm debilitated, and now there's, there's no reason I'm, uh, is a reason I'm angry or selfish or intolerant, because this is what's happened to me. Some people do self-punishment or self-loathing, so they'll say, well, then they, you sort of think, well, really negative about yourself, and we've talked about that this morning. Just can never say anything positive about yourself. When somebody praises you, you, you don't want to accept it because, oh, that's, that's, no, that, that can't be true of me. Um, actually, some people go as far as denying themselves things, good things, because they think they don't deserve it. Like, I'm not going to go and do that because I don't really deserve a nice thing in my life because I'm a bad person. People-pleasing. Something I've, I've fallen prey to over the years, you think, well, actually, I just worry about what people think of me and whether they think I'm an okay guy. And so if I just really try hard to, to, to make them see me in a good light, then I'll feel better about myself and the things that I'm not, I'm not happy about. Another one, finally, was just about doing good, like out, up, up weighing, up, up tipping the balance of the scales. So here's, my bad, here's all the bad things I've done. Well, if I do loads more good things, then surely that will balance it out. Somebody said to me in the cafe this week, I prayed on the way here, uh, and that, some, that, that nothing would go wrong. And, you know, I've been doing lots of good stuff, so I'm surely I've got a bit of credit with God. And it was sort of half joking, but actually, if we're honest, like sometimes that's how we, that's how we, we think. And, um, Gemma, could you just pop you on to the next one? We found this really silly feature on Facebook recently. Uh, uh, you know, that's not expe- it's to be expected, isn't it? Um, there's lots of silly things on Facebook. And I usually just ignore them because I think, oh, this is ridiculous. But I thought, actually, this might t- tie in with my sermon, so I'll do it. And all my family, basically, for those who have not seen it, it's heaven or hell, where are you headed? Um, and apparently to me, I've done 463,118 sins up to this point in my 37 years, and only 187 good deeds. Uh, that's about one good deed for every 2,500 sins. I did a calculation. Now, I don't know who's watching me, how they know this. Like, like, how does Facebook know that I've done all that, those many sins and clearly they're not seeing all the good deeds I've done because I've only done 187. Or maybe that's all I've done. And then the weird one that says kindness, 117%. I was like, what's that? Well, 100, 170% doesn't exist anyway. But if I'm such a bad person, how is kindness so high? Anyway, final decision. The outcome is uh, hell. And for those who can't read, the bottom says, uh, the numbers don't lie. We've added all your sins and your good deeds, and the results are clear. 
You live life your way. But what really matters is the constant kindness and laughter you give to your friends and family. Still, there's always room to be nicer. So <laughs> I think the long and short of it is that I bring laughter and kindness to my friends and family, but to everybody else, I'm a right git. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know, there may be some truth in that, and, but I just I don't know how they know that. But that's on Facebook. So if you want to find out where you're going, you just need to go on that, uh, that thing on Facebook. Now, the bizarre thing was, all of my family are going to heaven, and I'm the only one going to hell. <laughs> Literally, I'm thinking, I'm doing this, I'm thinking, I'm sure I'm as good as you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, nearly everybody I know is going to hell, heaven, but I'm going to hell. Um, and it was interesting, I, I have these little discussion groups at, at college sometimes with my group, my tutors, uh, my tutor group, and we, we, I, we didn't have anything to talk about. They wanted us to talk about terrorism or something, and we'd already talked about it about 15 times, so they were all going, oh, let's not talk about terrorism again, what can we talk about? And then somebody said, God, and I went, great, that's, my, that's a great subject. So we started talking, and we got out about the cross, and somebody said about what does the cross mean, and I said about, well, you, 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 know, you're, you can be forgiven of everything you've done, and, and Jesus dies in your place, and one guy says, I didn't want him to die in my place. I was like, too late, he's already done it. And then the other guy said, but what about people that, that, um, that you know, have been really good all their lives, but don't accept Jesus as, as their savior? What about them? And, and I was like, well, you know, only really God knows. And um, I said, but it's not really about whether you go to heaven or hell. He's like, yeah, but, yeah, but do they go to heaven or hell? And then I'm like, well, you know, the Bible says, unless you, Jesus is your savior, then, you know, you're separated from God. And then he's like, well, that, what about people that like, you know, murderers like Myra Hindley who say they repented before their, before they, their deathbed and she goes to heaven but a good person doesn't. That doesn't seem fair at all, does it? I was like, do you know what? You've got a point. Like, it doesn't seem fair at all. It's completely scandalous, isn't it? Because we're so used to the, the rules that we've born into. We're used to performance. We're used to being rewarded when we do good and punished when we do bad. Whereas in God's, God's economy and God's rules, it, it, this completely, the cross completely disarms that whole system. It's blown out of the water. And this is why the cross is still scandalous today. One of the reasons it's still scandalous today, but it's still scandalously good news because it's not, it doesn't rely on our behavior. It's not dependent on our performance. And it's the only area, I think, in life, even when you want to be unconditional in your love, it's so difficult to do so, particularly if somebody offends you. Like, you know, families break up all the time mothers and children and fathers and sons and brothers and sisters. They, they do, and I, I meet people all the time who say, well, we haven't spoken to my brother for 15 years because of that thing that happened. Like, it's meant to be unconditional, but it's not. And at the cross, it completely changes everything. Paul says, there's the crux of it. Paul says, um, next one, please, Gemma. While you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And that's why I brought the cross in today, because I wanted you to see, I know it's, it seems obvious, and if you've been around church a long time, you know this already, but sometimes it's good just to see it. All the things that we've talked about today, all the things that you have done, all the things that you've thought, all every, every bad thought, every selfish and kind word, they're nailed, they were nailed to the cross nailed to the cross once and for all. And he goes on and says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, over the cross. And I think he's part of it is he's disarmed the whole system, the justice system. He's using legal language and he's saying, it doesn't work like that anymore. It's not you've behaved well and you get to heaven and you get to be, be, be happy with God. It doesn't work like that. 
it's all about the cross. It's all what's been done to you. And, if, and it's difficult sometimes to, to explain to, to non-Christians what the cross means, but if, if it certainly, doesn't mean, it certainly means, um, doesn't mean less than this, that everything you've ever thought, done, or said wrong, and ever will do, has been forgiven on the cross. In Christ, everything is forgiven on the cross. That's difficult. I think what we do is we often beat ourselves up and we beat one another up. We can't forgive ourselves and we, we struggle to forgive one another, but God has already done it once and for all. How can you have assurance this morning of your salvation and that you are right with God? It is not by thinking, am I good enough? It's not by, by how good you are and how good you feel about yourself. It's by looking at the cross. You've never any reason to doubt um, your salvation when you look at the cross. Good people can't earn it. It's a gift. You can't earn a gift, can you? A gift is a gift. It's given because you don't deserve it. So you can't, don't try and earn it because it's already been given. Good people can't earn it and bad people can't lose it. You go through a period in your life and you seem to do everything wrong. You, you can't get out of cycles of, of behavior that you've got into and attitudes that, that, that are ungodly. You can't lose it. In fact, um, Philip, you'll have heard the words probably of Philip Yancey that says you, there's nothing you can do to ever make God love you more. And there's nothing you can ever do to make him love you less. Now, it sounds really cliched, but it's, that is the crux of the gospel. When you accept Christ, everything is paid. Everything. Today, yesterday, tomorrow, and forever. That's gone. You can never, you can never have to doubt your salvation because you, you, the cross has already, already done it. It's paid your debt already. So why build up more debt upon yourself and more things upon yourself? Other people will still tell you things. Other people will still speak negatively over your life, probably. People will still criticize you. You'll still get uh, blamed at work for things that are done wrong. you probably even fall out with people in church. But this, you can never, you can never not have God's acceptance and, and salvation. You can never lose that. And that's why coming to the cross every week is, is so important, isn't it? Because we remind ourselves of that. Remind ourselves that it's all been done for us. It's been completely accomplished on the cross. So finally, okay, we've, we've realized the, the gift, that the guilt we've, the, of the things we've done has been dealt with. What about the feelings? How do, we, how do we overcome the guilty feelings we still sometimes feel? Well, Paul says right in the first line of this, this passage, he says, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And he uses this, in Christ or in him several times in this very small passage. How did you receive Christ as Lord? By trying to earn his forgiveness? By beating yourself up when you mess up? Or by accepting the gift he's given you? Um, stay rooted in him and his truth. When you, when you struggle to believe that, you go back to the cross and you realize that's the truth. That's the, that's the cornerstone of your philosophy. That's the philosophy that we, that we believe, believe. He says also in verse 7, In him, in Christ, you'll be strengthened in faith. You'll be, you will overflow with thankfulness. In verse 10, you'll have fullness. Jesus said, I came to, to bring life, didn't he? Didn't I came to bring life in all its fullness. And we, we read only a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago in Paul's letter that, that, that all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God was in Jesus. And he's saying you can have the same fullness in your life. How? By being in Christ, by rooting your life in Christ and what he has done for you. It's only in Christ that we can combat the performance-based culture that is so ingrained in us from birth, the negative words we speak over ourselves and over one another, and the lies of the devil who will whisper, you're not good enough. You've done it again. You've messed up again. 
in response, we remind him and ourselves that the payment has been paid. We look at the cross again and we remind the devil of that, remind ourselves of that, remind other people of that, because that's, that's, that's the judgment being paid. That's the debt paid. Finally, um, when we're still struggling with this stuff, I read a, a good quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, who said, said this about the, the, the following, about the secret to Christian ha- happiness. He says, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. And I just thought some of the philosophies that were around in Paul's day were look within, just find, you'll find it within. And we have it today, just, you know, mindfulness, look in yourself, look at, you know, meditate on yourself, look at, you know, get, purify yourself from, un, un, you know, un, unrighteousness. And it's, it's all about looking inward. And Christianity is the opposite. It's like, do, you'll never find it looking at yourself. You'll only get more depressed. Well, I would anyway. If you're anything like me and you've got one, one good deed for 2,500 sins, <laughs> you're going to look inside and get depressed. But you look to Jesus and that's where, that's where everything changes. So in response, to end it then, for those who still str- who wrestle with guilt and struggle to forgive themselves, for those who fall prey to trying to live up to the expectations of others, for those of us who sometimes forget they can't earn God's approval, for those of us who fear judgment and punishment, and for those who struggle to believe that every sin they've ever committed, ever will commit, has been forgiven and has been nailed to the cross. This is a moment for you this morning. We're going to take communion together. So if you uh, have been asked to serve, would you mind coming in and getting that? And what I want you to do is, when we take communion is I want you to take a good look at the cross. It sounds obvious, but take a good look at the charge sheet that's on there. Look at what has been done for you. Look at what Jesus has, has bought for you. And there may be other things that are not on that sheet, but you would want to put in that place. Write them on there metaphorically and see that they've been nailed there, and that's where they can stay. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have done everything that we couldn't do. There are no philosophies on earth that can deal with the state of sin in our lives and in the world. When we look at ourselves, Lord, we realize that we don't measure up. We might not be bad people by the world's standards, but we don't measure up to your goodness. We don't measure up to the example of Jesus. But Lord, we thank you that we don't have to. Thank you that we don't have to. Thank you, Lord, that the cross has changed everything. Not just for us, but for everyone out there as well. Your cross has disarmed the whole system that would want to make us feel guilty about ourselves and make us look inward. And Lord, this morning we look again to the cross. We look again to you. And Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to live our lives in you. Thank you that it's a gift that we can't earn and we can't lose. Thank you, Lord, that you can't love us anymore and you can't love us any less.